Well, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to dive into chapter 1 together this morning. And as we're, as we're doing that, I'm, I'm thinking about three big questions that, changes, that change every teenager. Let me repeat that. I'm thinking about three big questions that change every teenager. At this point, all the teenagers are like, what? And all the parents are shutting me off because it doesn't apply to them. Stay with me. I'm thinking about a book called Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. I've been listening to this book and reading it too, and it's excellent. Um, But in the book, the authors are distilling all kinds of research, years worth of research and interviews with American teenagers, and they've boiled it down to three questions that they believe teenagers are asking. Let's see if you uh, are familiar with these questions. Question number one, who am I? Question number two, where do I fit? Question number three, what difference can I make? Who am I? That's the question of identity. Um, how we see ourselves. Where do I fit? It's the question of belonging. Um, What is my connection with other people? And the third question, uh, what difference can I make? It's a question of purpose. What am I I here for? What am I here to do? And I love those questions. I love those questions because uh, they're the questions that I've been asking all my life. And teenagers... Relax. Your parents are asking these same questions. Your grandparents are still asking and trying to answer these same questions. We're all trying to figure out who am I, where do I fit, and what difference can I make in the world? But what makes me most excited about those questions is that these are some of the questions that, questions that the Bible says we should be asking. These are some of the questions that God gladly wants to answer for us so that he can renew us so he can renew our identity and our belonging and our purpose. So what does all this have to do with Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus? I think these three questions are the same questions that every church asks or should ask. I want to remind you that every time you see the word you, Y-O-U, in Ephesians, You should translate it the southern way, y'all. There's not a singular you, Y-O-U, singular, in the whole book of Ephesians. It's all written to y'all, or if you're really southern, all y'all. So every church, this is a letter written to a church, a group of people, an assembly of people called out to follow Jesus in Ephesus. And I believe they were asking those same questions. Who are we? Where do we fit in here? And and what difference can we make? Because those questions are built into people. They're built into us. And I think those are questions that Mountain Fellowship needs to be asking. Let me take a a moment. This is a little bit longer intro to the text than normal, but let me just take a moment of pastoral privilege and just, and just remind us that our church is in a pivotal place in its history right now. We just celebrated 10 years together, 
And uh, for those of you who have been around for those short 10 years, you know that our history has been kind of a roller coaster a little bit. Sometimes some people might describe it as two steps forward, one step back. Several pastoral transitions, not to mention uh, the pandemic, which most churches have been affected by, but ours has too. Um, Churches, like people, change over time. Tim Keller has said said that his wife Kathy has been married to five Tim Kellers. But they're all the same Tim. Because he's changed over the years. And Tim... Uh, applies that to churches, that over time, over decades especially, churches change. They're the same people, it's the same church, but they change. And in a smaller church like ours, uh, we can change more quickly when the people in the seats change. And so it it becomes more obvious, the change is a, a lot more obvious for a small church than it is for a big church. Um, if we... Uh, switched out 40% of our members with a new 40 per- 40% of people, it makes a whole lot more difference than if 40% of a 10,000-member church switches out. Um, so Mountain Fellowship, we're still the same. We're still Mountain Fellowship. We're blessed that all of our elders currently we're here, are part of the original core team, so we have a connection with who we are uh, and who we set out to be as Mountain Fellowship. But if you look around the room, those of us, those of you who have been here for the whole time, you say, well, this is a different Mountain Fellowship than we started with. But that's okay. God's, God's still in charge. God's okay with that. But it's, it's time for us now... Maybe as we're coming out of the pandemic, or at least this version of it, whatever. I'm not in charge of that. But it's time for us to think again about who are we, where do we fit, and what difference can we make uh, for our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. And so Ephesians, Ephesians is the place that we can go to to answer those questions for us because it answers the same questions for every church, but let's, let's spend the next few months in Ephesians together asking, who are we? Where do we fit in? What difference does God want us to make um, in the place he's put us? So let's begin to, begin to slowly answer those questions this morning as we stand. And I'm going to read, you can stand. Grab your Bible, open your Bible app. Grab your bulletin. I'm actually going to read more than the verses that I plan to cover this morning. And and let me just say this. I'm actually only going to talk about verse 3 this morning. Uh, And I know you're starting to get worried. Eric talked about verse 2 last week. I'm just going to focus on verse 3. It's okay. We're going to pick up the pace. But... Part of the reason we need to go a little slower at first here is because verses 3 to 14 are one sentence in Greek. Your, Paul's English teacher would have been furious. That's a run-on sentence, brother. But it, it's one long sentence, and it is so rich. It is so 
thick and beautiful. It's like a piece of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. That You have to eat it slowly. And we're going to have to unpack it slowly. I intended to go through verse 6 this morning, but once I got into it, I said, well, I can't get past verse 3. So that's what we're going to do today. Bear with me, but I want to read the whole sentence, verses 3 to 14. So um, here we go. This is the word of the God who loves you, Mountain Fellowship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, what... Uh, <laughs> What a breathtaking sentence that is. Um, and so easy to get lost in all the details. And we don't want to do that. We want to take a few weeks and, and just look at it closely so that we can be encouraged by uh, what you have to say about who we are. Father, Mountain Fellowship needs you. We need you to tell us. We need you to speak to us. We need you to remind us, who are we? And so we ask that you would begin to do that for us this morning. That you would speak uh, your good words to us and over us and in us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as a pastor, I have attended quite a few funerals, and I've officiated a few, but I'll never forget one of them, and not because it was sweet. <laughs> it was wild. I will uh, call the man Dan, just because I want to change his name to protect the guilty, uh, the deceased was a man named Dan. Dan was a crusty, curmudgeonly old feller. And honestly, just saying, there weren't a lot of folks there to remember him. 
And sadly, no one had planned to give the eulogy for the, morning, uh, for the service. And so the, the minister officiating um, asked if there was anyone in the congregation who would like to say something about Dan, who would like to eulogize him. There was an awkward silence, and then one of Dan's old Lions Club buddies, who himself was a crusty old curmudgeonly fellow, slowly made his way to the front and said, yeah, I'll say something. And he got up there, and this is what he did. I was there. I saw it. He looked up to the ceiling, and he said, well, Dan, old buddy, we're going to miss you down here. And then he looked at us, and he said, oh, who are we kidding? Well, Dan, old buddy, we're really going to miss you down here, up here. I kid you not. Uh, be careful who gives the eulogy. I, I would recommend that you go ahead and schedule that person and perhaps give them a script. Because um, whoever it is might be more honest than you want them to be. Somebody forgot to tell Dan's friend that the word eulogy means good word. <laughs> it literally means a good word. And everybody, all of us, wants somebody to put in a good word for us at the end of our lives. And a eulogy is an opportunity for someone who truly knows you and knows who you are to tell everyone who you truly are and to say a good word about you. But Paul is putting in a good word for the Ephesian church at the beginning of their existence, not at the end. They're a young church. They were maybe about 10 years old when they received this letter from Paul in the early 60s A.D. And when Paul uses the word bless or blessed, it's the Greek word eulogia from which we get the word eulogy. It means a good word. It, it means... To put in a good word for someone. So you might retranslate verse 3 this way, for example. Say a good word about God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has said good words about us in Christ with every spiritual good word in the heavenly places. And blessing wasn't just about speaking good words, it was... It was the blessing, for example, in the Old Testament, the blessing of the father on the firstborn son was not just speech that said nice things. It was a speech that put into motion good blessings, good things that would happen, prosperity, good life, uh, success, wealth, all of these things, the inheritance that that son would receive. So... These were good words that came and resulted with uh, good things. And so Paul wants this church to know who they truly are. And, and so he looks to the one who does know who they truly are and uh, has good words to say about him. God, the Father of their Lord Jesus Christ. So some questions I want to answer this morning before we go and before we move on next week to verse 4. Why does the church need to hear good words from God? 
who is this one who's speaking these good words to the church? What are the good words that he has to say? We'll just touch on that briefly because that's the next three weeks. How do we get these good words said about us? And then finally, how should the church respond to these good words? So my first question is maybe where I'm going to spend the longest time, uh, the first two questions. Why does the church need to hear these good words? And, And who is the one speaking them to us? Well, we have to consider what the church in Ephesus was up against. I talked a little bit about that two weeks ago, but let me read to you from Acts chapter 19 where Luke records Paul's experience in Ephesus. And this will help give us a little bit of an idea of why the church in Ephesus would need to hear good words from God. Acts 19, starting in verse 23. Luke says that about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is what the church movement was called. The, um, The movement of people following Jesus. No little disturbance was arising concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, the goddess that the Ephesians worshipped, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So he gathered these craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know from that, from, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, She whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And we know that Luke goes on to say that they rushed into the 24,000 seat theater and shouted that phrase for two hours straight. The words that the church in Ephesus was hearing about who they were and who they represented as followers of Jesus um, are the reason why the church needed to hear good words from God. They were born into a context uh, where Luke also said in another place that the people were speaking evil of them. Um, The culture in Ephesus was trying to answer the question, who are you, for the church in Ephesus. The pressure that they were under um, from the culture around them was was trying to force them to uh, a certain identity. So I read this and I tried several different ways to try to summarize what what was going on with these folks in Ephesus and their opposition to the followers of Jesus and trying to summarize it into one uh, helpful way of thinking about uh, who the Ephesians thought the Christians should be. And it's who the Ephesians 
thought everyone should be, including themselves. And this is what I came up with. The answer to the question, who are you, is you are one who exists to enjoy the good life. That's nothing fancy or earth-shattering. But if, you, but if you look at what they were saying to the Ephesian uh, Christians, they were saying, you can have the good life without Jesus and his church. They, they said, it's from this business that we have our wealth, and there's danger that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. These people are claiming that Jesus and his church are more important than our wealth and the good life that it buys us. You exist to enjoy the good life, but you don't need Jesus and the church to do it. In fact, your Jesus and your church are getting in the way of our enjoyment of the good life. So whatever the good life is as you define it, that's what you're after. And I wonder if we sometimes, I I know I am sometimes tempted to believe that voice that says... I can have a good life without Jesus. I can have a good life without his church and his people. Oh, Jesus Jesus and life with his people, they're getting in the way of what the truly good life is. And so I, I have to ask myself, do I think that following Jesus and being in fellowship with you is keeping me from the good life? Or is following Jesus and following him with you really the center of the good life? Is, is this the good life? And then they, they had thoughts about how you get that good life. They, they had this goddess Artemis, who I told you a couple of weeks ago. She was the goddess of outdoor recreation and hunting, and childbirth. Maybe Chattanooga's favorite two things. Being outside and having a family. To get the good life, you have to give your full devotion to whatever it is that you think will give it to you. And for them, we may think that's silly, a goddess, Artemis, come on. But what do we make with our hands that we think if we fully devote ourselves to it, it will give us the good life we really want? The people of Ephesus had already decided what was worthy of their whole lives. It was something they could make with their own hands. It was a goddess who would support their version of the good life. They they made her in their image. And if they believed and followed the Jesus that Paul preached, then the good life they lived for would be counted as nothing, they said. We don't want that to be counted as nothing. And the things that they treasured may be deposed from their magnificence, they said. We don't want that. Paul would understand this dilemma. When Jesus appeared to Paul alive, 
it shattered Paul's world. It, it changed everything about what he thought the good life was. And now he was revolving his life around Jesus. He understood what they were struggling with, uh, with being confronted with this risen Jesus. Paul even said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if, I, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's a man who hated Jesus and killed people who hated him, and now he's saying, I will give up all my life and everything for this Jesus and the opportunity to tell others about him. And we know that Paul told the Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I wonder what voices in your life and mine are drawing us away from revolving our entire lives around Jesus. What voices are telling you worshiping Jesus isn't worth all this trouble? It isn't worth what you're going to lose. So to my young friends um, who are in a pressure cooker today that says um, what you really need to do is live for the good life as you define it. Go get it. Jesus is going to get in the way of that. You're going to hear. What you really need to do is find that thing that will give you the good life you're looking for and revolve your whole life around it. And it could be a good thing like outdoor recreation and children. But what you need to do is find whatever it is and make your whole life revolve around it and go all in. Jesus will not play that game with us because he loves us too much. So those are maybe some of the voices that the church in Ephesus was, was hearing, maybe some of the words that were coming at them. Um, there's one more thought about this. Those voices were speaking from a place of power in Ephesus. Because all of Ephesus believed those things. All of Ephesus was controlled by the Roman Empire. And they controlled the narrative of the day. They're the ones who said what the story really is. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that Ephesus was full of temples built for the worship of Roman emperors and governors. Rome ruled the story of the Ephesians. And the slogan of the day, we're told, in the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And a true Roman citizen 
would say it and believe it and preach it and live it. But the Christians were taught, as Paul said, to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Paul reminded those Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he had come to Ephesus and had gone about proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus. So here comes Paul. Here comes this little church into a culture that says Caesar is Lord and they proclaim another king and another kingdom. The powers that be um, are reinforcing the voice of the good life is not found in Jesus. It's found in whatever you can make your life about. But then there's another power behind the cultural and political powers of the day. It's a power that speaks against the church. Um, and Luke describes that too in Acts 19 and 20. He describes Ephesus as a place that was steeped in the powers of evil. The powers of darkness. Listen to what he said. Luke says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So when Paul came into town preaching the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit began casting out the powers of darkness and the effect of the powers of darkness. Well, some folks noticed that, and they caught on to that, and they thought, hmm, maybe we could use this power. Listen to what, listen to what they did. This is in uh, Acts chapter 20. It's right after these verses, starting in verse, no, Acts 19, sorry, verse 13. So after, after they discovered that, that Paul's handkerchiefs and clothes were able to cast demons out and heal people. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Why do I take the time to tell you that little story because um, some of the Ephesians, the, some of the Jewish Ephesians saw this power of the Holy Spirit in Paul and they said, we want to use that. We need some of that stuff. So one of the other temptations we have in the world in which we live is that we will even try to use God to get to the good life we want. There is this dark power going on behind the scenes, behind these voices. Many believed the gospel, and a number of them 
who practice magic arts brought their sorcery books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. Paul was well aware that there were evil powers against the church, and so he would write later in chapter 1, he would say, to encourage the church, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is over all of those powers of darkness and their voices. And then in chapter 6, Paul will say, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, with people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are voices speaking against the church and against you from places of power. Yes, cultural. Yes, political. But Paul's not talking about fighting a culture war. He's talking about spiritual warfare. He says the politicians and the, 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 the social media and the this and the that, yeah, they're powerful. But we're not fighting against flesh and blood. There's some power behind those powers that the church has to contend with. Do we really believe, Mountain Fellowship, that God's enemy hates us? He wants to destroy us. We can always assume that there is a power of darkness working against what God is wanting to do in our midst. It's just, this is what Paul assumes. And we'll get to that later, but so why, why did the Ephesians need to hear this good, these good words from God? Because they were hearing other voices from dark places of power. And who is the one speaking these good words to them is a person whose voice is different and his power, his place of power is different. Who is the one speaking? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Paul says, don't listen to those other voices, church. Listen to the good words of the Trinity, the three-in-one God. God the Father has good words that will bless you. These good words are in Christ, and they are spiritual. They are of the Spirit. This is where good life is found, is in the Trinity, in the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, church. Listen to his voice. He has good words for you. He wants to speak to you in the context of all the lies that you're being told. And he's speaking from the place of power. He also is speaking from the heavenly places. It says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul wants the church to know that these good words come from a place of a higher power. They come from the very throne room of God. It's a power that cannot be used. And so, be encouraged, Mountain Fellowship. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit wants to speak blessing 
good words to us. It's his voice that he wants us to hear. His voice will answer the question, who are we? And it comes from a place of power that's over all the other dark powers. While we should be aware that we're under attack spiritually all the time, we should not fear. We should listen to the voice of the one who speaks from his throne room. And what are those good words he wants his church to hear? Well, this is what we'll talk about in the next three weeks. But just briefly, verse four, verses 4 through 6 um, answers the question, who, we, who are we? We are chosen by the Father. Verses 7 to 12, who are we? We're redeemed by the Son. 13 and 14, who are we? We're sealed by the Spirit. And in those good words, God is going to say to us, let me show you what the real good life is. And let me show you what I have done to give it to, to, give it to you. And you'll be encouraged, I promise, um, as you listen to those good words over the next few weeks. We're going to hear God tell us who we are, Mountain Fellowship. And he will train us to listen to his voice. And then how does the church get these good words said about them? How do, how do I get these good words said about me? You know, thinking back to the eulogy uh, story of uh, your funeral, what do you think it will take to get someone to say good words to you, about you at your funeral in the eulogy? Well, typically what we think is good words are reserved for good people, Right? You know, it's, it's, it's tough as a preacher to officiate a funeral for a person who was horrible. But if the person lived a good life, it's, it's a lot easier. Because we hope that what, no matter what we've done in our life, folks will remember the good things most. Because we think that good words come because of the good in us. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say that we're blessed with good words from God because of something in us. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. And he'll say something similar to that in verse 6. He has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. He's the beloved. We don't get good words from God because of what's in us, but only because we're in Christ. So what does that mean? In Christ is Paul's favorite description of a Christian. In fact, he never uses the word Christian. That was a derogatory term. Um, his favorite description of believers in Jesus is in Christ. It's what has been called union with Christ, that we're so united to Christ that we get the blessing that Jesus deserves. We're so united to him that we get the good words that only he deserves. So the only way we can get the good words of God for us is if we're in Jesus, if we're in Christ. And why, where did Paul get this idea of being united to Christ? He got it when he heard Jesus on the road to Damascus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's thought would have been, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your followers. And I, I believe, and Many believe that this had a profound impact on Paul for Jesus to so closely identify himself with his people and they with him 
that he could say to Paul, when you persecute them, you persecute me. Well, the positive flip side of that is when God says good words about Jesus, he says good words about those who are in Jesus, who are united to him. If you are in Jesus, the beloved son, then you get to hear the words that the father said to Jesus at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And how do I get in Christ? Well, we'll look at these verses later, but verses 14 and 15 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and had the guarantee of an inheritance. If you are trusting that the story of Jesus is the true story, that he lived a perfect life on your behalf, that he died in your place the death you deserve to die for your sins, and that he was raised to life and lives now as the Lord over everything, including you, then Paul says, you're in Christ. And now the father of Jesus is your father and Jesus is your brother. And the good words that Jesus, God's beloved son, hears from his father are now yours. You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You're my chosen child. You're my holy and blameless child. Before me, you will be holy and blameless. We're going to hear all these good words in the next few weeks. So be encouraged, Mountain Fellowship. If we are trusting in Christ, um, if he is the sun in our solar system, then we're in him, and God has good words to say to us. And my last question is, how should the church respond to these good words? Paul told us right off the bat in verse 3, he said, Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. We say good words back to him. We say good words about him. We worship him. We continue to be a people who worship, who gather together every Sunday, and we say good words about him to him. So I had hoped that I would be through a whole lot sooner than I am <laughs> because I wanted to give you an opportunity to say good words back to God. But I think what I'm going to ask you to do is do that where you are silently as we're uh, enjoying the Lord's Supper together. Um, would you express to him in your heart some good words. Thank him, praise him, whatever it is. Sometimes it sounds awkward, but do we ever really just stop and say, God, I bless you. I, I thank you for all of the good words that I have received from you in Christ. Um, let that kind of be on your heart as we share this meal together. Father, um,
you love this church. You have good words to say to us about who we are. And I am fully aware of my inability to express the good words that you have to say in your word. So Holy Spirit, you're going to have to speak to your people. Encourage us as we're in Ephesians together. Let let your good words about who we are lift us up, encourage us, focus us, empower us to be what you have called Mountain Fellowship to be in this place at this time. And then help us to share your good words about us with each other and remind each other you're chosen, you're redeemed, you're sealed by the Spirit, and we'll learn what those mean. But, Father, would you, would you make us a, a people who are rooted and grounded in what you have to say about us? And thank you for this table. This is another way that you speak, that you speak blessing over us. Because it's in the body and blood of Jesus that we become your children. And we can hear you say, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. So as we come and hear us pray our prayers of blessing back to you, would you be pleased and would you find joy in the words we have to say to you in Jesus name I pray amen